Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. At that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise to Christ. Thank you, Milton, for reading that, and uh, why don't we ask God to help us as we think uh, on it. Heavenly Father, we, um, we're always thankful for your word, but every now and then we come across passages which are strange to our ears and which are confronting in the things that they say, and we've uh, seen something this morning which is quite unpleasant and gruesome. We pray that now as we spend some time thinking on it, that you may not just help us understand what went on back then, but see the truths that come from it that should impact our hearts and minds and lives today. So please be at work within us this morning by your spirit, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you're new to us uh, at St. Stephen's, you won't know, we've been going through Matthew's Gospel for uh, quite some time, and this is the latest passage that we're up to. We didn't just pick this reading. What do we make of the reading this morning? I think it's possible, if you've been here and been part of the series over the weeks, to see this passage as something which I think is pretty common at this time of the year. We're in exam season. And uh, one of the common features of exam season, at least it was for me personally, is what I call the padding. The padding. It's the classic technique used by those who've run out of things to say in an exam essay, and we just need to pad it out a bit. We, um, th these things are not necessarily going to be on topic. They don't really have anything to do with the main point. We just want to um, add a bit of length, and we think that that will make it better. Do we all know the padding? I'm seeing not a good. We hope it will get us a few extra marks from a kindly exam marker, or we think it will fool a feeble marker into thinking, well, it's longer. They must be saying more things and they get extra marks. Well, is Matthew, the person who wrote this gospel, just doing some padding here? Uh, and the reason I ask that is because these verses are so out of place with what's come before. They're very different from the rest of Matthew's gospel that we've been looking at. Have a think about some of the strangeness of these verses. They're about a birthday, verse 6. How many birthdays come up in the Bible? Two. Pharaoh's in Genesis 40 and Herod's here. That's it. 
Don't get any other birthdays. Someone say Jesus. It's not celebrated. It's, um, it's not called a birthday. The word birthday only comes up the twice. Uh, and both interesting characters. These are not good characters, right? Pharaoh and Herod. Think about who these verses are about. They are about Herod. The whole gospel about Jesus uh, so far from Matthew has been about Jesus. It's all been about him and what he said and what he's done. Suddenly in these verses we shift off Jesus. He's not even in them. We're only focused on this terrible guy, Herod. What's that about? Is it just padding? And it's about tetrarchs and beheadings. And those things seem very different from what the rest of the gospel's been about. And, and, and I think, unrelatable to our lives. Hands up any tetrarchs in the house? No, no tetrarchs. Uh, most of us haven't been tempted to behead. It's, a, it's an odd passage. While we're asking questions, here's another. Verse 2. Why does Herod think Jesus is John the Baptist, back from the dead? Why does he think that he's just heard reports about Jesus, he's just heard about the reports of Jesus' miraculous power, and he goes straight to, oh, it's John the Baptist back from the dead. He says, verse 2, this is John the Baptist, he's risen from the dead, that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, notice that, he recognises the miraculous powers at work in Jesus, all the enemies of Jesus recognised the miraculous powers, they all knew he did it, they just didn't know how he did it. But he links that with John the Baptist. Why? That's very odd. Because although John was a, a prophet and he was a significant person, and Jesus himself says, among those born of women, no one's greater than John the Baptist, John the Baptist never did anything miraculous. He never did anything miraculous. In fact, in John chapter 10, it explicitly says, John the Baptist never did a miraculous thing. So why link the two of them here? So this is a very strange passage that we're in this morning. Well, let's look at it more closely, and then I've got two points uh, for us to consider from it. Uh, let's try and put it together just so that we're all clear on how it fits together. In verse 1, we, we meet this new character called Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this is not the same Herod who came up in, in uh, chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel when Jesus was born, the one who did the terrible things to the, the under two boys in the area of Bethlehem. This is Herod, often called Antipas, who was one of that king Herod's sons. Now, tetrarch means literally ruler of a quarter. And what it meant often was that the, um, when a king had a, a, an area where he ruled, you would sometimes split it into quarters for the, the different children. But that's what it meant literally. Generically, the name became common for a subordinate ruler under a Rome, in a Roman province. So that's what Herod is here. He's a subordinate person of authority in Judea, which is a Roman province. Well, he's heard the reports about Jesus. He knows that Jesus is an incredible person who's been creating a big stir. He's heard of all this and, as I said before, he gets this idea in his head that this Jesus must be a reincarnation of John the Baptist. John the Baptist had lived just before that and he thinks, it's that, he, he thinks Jesus is that. Now we'll come back to why in a moment. But then the rest of the verses from verse 3 go back in time to explain why John the Baptist is in Herod's mind. It explains how John the Baptist died, and we find out that Herod had a big hand in it. We find out that Herod had arrested John the Baptist because John had been calling him out for an inappropriate relationship. We actually know about the family tree of Herod from history books outside the scriptures, and it was a mess. 
This was a, a very incestuous and nasty kind of web of relationships. But we're told all we need to know here. Herodias was Herod's brother's wife, and Herod's got into a relationship with her. And so John has been saying, verse 4, it's not lawful for you to have her. That has ticked Herod off, and so Herod arrests him. And he wants to kill him. But verse 5, the people were on John's side. The people knew that John the Baptist was a prophet. He was scared of uh, the people turning against him, and so he didn't kill John. But then it carries on. And on his birthday in verse 6, the daughter of Herodias, so this is kind of his stepdaughter, dances and pleases Herod so much that Herod promised her anything she wants. Pleased is probably a, a euphemism here. It was clearly a kind of erotic dance of some kind and Herod does what uh, so many foolish men still do today in certain establishments. And Herodias is clearly, um, uh, Herodias, the, the, the wife, is also clearly against John because she wants this relationship with Herod, so she hates John as well. And so she hatches a plan with her daughter, and so the daughter requests the head of John the Baptist. Uh, notice from verse 9, it's clear Herod doesn't want to do this. He's actually distressed by this. He's upset by this. Uh, I'm sure he wasn't expecting the answer to this offer, but he didn't want to look like a liar in front of the guests. And just before you think, well, that's noble, he doesn't want to break his word, he made this word trying to look good in front of the guests, right? He was, he was trying to offer more than, who offers that? And he goes through with this terrible thing, and John is executed in this gruesome manner. It's a very strange passage. Well, two points, and the second one will be the main one, because the second one, I think, is the main point. The first point is a shorter one, and it's just this, be like John. It's memorable, isn't it? They say make your points memorable. There you go, be like John. I'm looking out at a few Johns and people are nodding and um, be like John. John only speaks once in this passage, but what he says and the way he says it is very important and very instructive. He does what we, it's there in verse 4. He does what we might call today, he speaks truth to power. It's a very hard thing to do. He speaks truth to power. He speaks morality to depravity. John is fearless. He must have known that this would be poking the bear. He must have known when he said this that this would be taking a stick to the hive. He must have known that this would get him in big trouble. He would have known to call out the ruler on this kind of error would have brought repercussions for him. And yet he did it. We know from earlier on in Matthew that John's main message was repentance. Calling people to repentance generally. Here we see he did it specifically as well, particularly. He shows real courage here. He could have thought, well, it's none of my business what uh, Herod's doing. He could have thought, well, I don't want to rock the boat and put myself at risk, but he speaks the truth to power morally. Now, I do want to say it's important to hear, here to see he calls out people here that are powerful. I think sometimes as Christians we've been good at calling out people that are vulnerable and lower, uh, in quite an unkind way, and not so much the people who are above where the consequences could come back on us. That's what John does here. And he calls to repent despite the risk that he may have faced, the price that he could have had to pay, the cost that would come. I wonder if Christians are more hesitant to do this today. I've spoken before of my, um, 
my unhappiness and disdain at the PC culture, the political correctness, which I think ruins the ability to have free speech and debate issues openly and robustly. And I personally think political correctness probably started for really good motives. Uh, it reminded us to be more considerate that when we say things it affects other people and to think that and keep that in mind when we're speaking. But it's got to such a terrible extreme at the moment that now there are certain areas of life and topics of conversation that people don't feel able to to uh, take part in anymore, things that they don't feel able to say, opinions they're not able to share. It's restricting open discussion and debate in a way that I think is very, very dangerous. And us as Christians are not above it. I know for myself, I've got a fear in certain circumstances and on certain topics. But the call to repent is too important not to do. John did it. One of the things I've always respected in my mum is she's got a bit of John uh, about her. She won't fear the person or the place. She'll say the things that need to be said. The call to repent is so central to the message of Jesus. It's so core to the gospel itself. And I'm not calling us here to be rude and obnoxious and thoughtless. I'm hoping that we will speak always with the humility that comes... Uh, with the knowledge and humility that comes from knowing we're people who need to repent. That always changes the way you call to repent. I'm talking about us doing it wisely and sensitively so that we speak differently to those who are more vulnerable uh, in their sinfulness uh, to those who are more powerful and above other people in their sinfulness. There are some of us who need to speak the truth in love because we're very good at speaking the truth, we're not so good at the love. But here, I wonder if more of us try to speak love without truth. We can learn from John the Baptist. Be like John. Repentance is so important. So be like John. Secondly, uh, and the main point, don't be like Herod. I'm confident I'm not offending anyone here that there's no one called Herod. Don't be like Herod. Uh, This is clearly the main point of the passage. Herod is the key figure all the way through. We know it's not Jesus because he's not even here, but it's not John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not the key one here. Herod is. So what are we to make of him? What do you think of him from this passage? It's possible superficially to think, well, I can't relate to him, he's so different. He's a tetrarch, whatever that is, and I'm not that, and he's involved in a beheading, and uh, I'm not going to be tempted to do that. And so we can think that he's just miles away from us, but that's superficially. As soon as you scratch a little under the surface, there is much more going on here. I don't think we're supposed to see Herod here as this evil, malevolent figure that we can't relate to. I want to tell you, here's an everyday guy we can relate to and are supposed to. If you're doubting that, let me prove it to you. What does he do wrong here? In verses 3 to 4, he's a guy in a wrong relationship. Ever been in a wrong relationship? Most of us have. Even if we haven't, we know what it's like. We've seen other people in it. That's who he is, verses 3 to 4. In verses 5 and verse 9, he's a guy who doesn't do things because of the fear of public opinion because he worries what other people think. That's what Herod is. And as soon as you realise that, you go, well, oh my goodness, that's certainly something I've faced. In verses 6 and 7, he's a guy at a party who makes a dumb decision. He does it because of a woman. He probably does it under the influence of something else. But he's someone who in a certain circumstance, here it is a party, he makes a wrong decision. Now these things that he does are wrong, they're failures, they're sins, but they're very relatable. 
These are totally the kind of things that uh, we could see ourselves doing. Herod here is not the picture of a person who's part Hitler, part Genghis Khan, part Joseph Stalin. He's a guy who gets involved in a wrong sexual relationship, who lets peer pressure lead him astray, and who gets himself in a bad situation at a party. He could be you and I. And so as we look at him, let's learn from him. What's his problem? What's the thing that he does wrong? What's his kryptonite so that you and I can try to avoid it? I think he does two things wrong here. They're linked, but they're two different things. Um, But you've got to read between the lines of the passage to see it. The two key words I'm going to give you that he doesn't do in a moment are not in this passage in terms of the word. But as soon as I say it to you, I think you'll see it all the way through. So two things Herod failed to do in this passage that I hope you and I will learn from. The first is he failed to listen to his conscience. He failed to listen to his conscience. What makes me say that? I asked you before, why does Herod liken Jesus to John in verse 2? Because John wasn't like Jesus. He even says it about the miraculous things. They were, they were too different. Look at what he says again in verse 2 to his attendants. This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. This is so silly. Such an odd thing that he says here. Because as I said before, John never did anything miraculous. Why make this link? I can tell you why. This is the verdict of a guilty conscience. This is, we've all done this. We've all done something and felt so guilty about it, we read another situation wrong because our guilt has gotten our way. And the reason you can tell it's a guilty conscience is the whole rest of it is him replaying it in his head, what he did. It's there because Herod knew he'd done the wrong thing. And that's backed up in the rest of the verses. Herod didn't want to do what he did, but he ended up doing it because of the wrong relationship he'd gotten into, because of the dumb offer he'd made at the party, because of his fear of what other people would think if he did certain things or didn't do certain things. Our consciences as Christians, our consciences as human beings, never mind as Christians, are serious. And when you go against them repeatedly, we do ourselves damage. God gives us our consciences as a gift, and we want to listen to them. In this passage, Herod's conscience at different times was pricked, but he went against it and did what he knew to be wrong. John called him out on the relationship. He went ahead with it. He didn't want to do the the beheading, but um, peer pressure, he went with it. Friends, often too, we will not listen to our consciences. Our conscience will raise a flag, and we will immediately jump to justifications. Our conscience will uh, start a protest, And we will set it aside with counter-arguments which may not be genuine. We play with fire when we do that to our consciences. Uh, 1 Timothy 1 verse 19 says this. It's Paul writing to Timothy and he says, Hold on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Those are really important words. Uh, hold on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Not holding on to your conscience can shipwreck a person's faith. Now, I want to say our consciences are not always right because sometimes we can feel guilty about things we shouldn't be feeling guilty about. But often it will be the Spirit of God Himself prompting us. And to go against our conscience always has consequences. Even if we shouldn't feel guilty about something, it's dangerous. Going against it can shipwreck our faith. In other words, going against your conscience is like putting a hole in the ship of your soul. 
It's why in Romans we're told not to challenge people uh, to go against their conscience, even if their conscience is wrong. That's the weaker brother argument. Because you don't want people to start searing it and going against it. It's very important. But we do it. Sometimes we ignore our conscience because the thing we feel guilty about also makes us feel good. The action gives us temporal pleasure or there's a thrill attached to it or it's got an appeal that perhaps we don't even admit to ourselves and and so we just set our conscience aside. We deceive ourselves with it. Herod failed to listen to his conscience and that led to the second thing he failed to do. He failed to repent. As soon as we see the name of John the Baptist in these verses, for anyone who's been reading Matthew's Gospel, the first thing you should think in your mind is repentance, because that was the message and the ministry of John the Baptist. We saw that back in chapter 3 when we, when we were on John the Baptist. He was preparing the way for Jesus by preaching the message of repentance. He said, repent, uh, the, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He did a baptism of repentance. He kept using that word and that phrase. Well, Herod, in this passage, is the poster child of a person who won't repent. Remember, repent means turning. It means changing direction. Stop doing the wrong things we've been doing to live God's way. And if you don't repent, the scriptures tell us, you won't find Jesus. Faith and repentance is what we've got to do. That's what Herod shows us here. He wouldn't listen to his conscience. He wouldn't repent. He wouldn't stop doing these wrong things and live God's way. And when you you muck things up with sin, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. When you don't repent in small ways, it grows and grows and grows. It becomes a mess. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 talks about the sin that so easily entangles. And it does. One small one becomes a slightly bigger one, which links in with something else. And suddenly your your life is this mess. And it wrecks lives. And the more we give in to sin and don't repent, the harder it becomes to break. I want you to notice here, it's not that Herod did one massive, unforgivable, gigantic sin. You can read this passage and think, oh my goodness, he beheaded someone. That's not what it was. What he did was a number of what we would consider smaller, less significant things and didn't pull back from it. And it led to something way more serious. It became a mess. It wasn't that he just beheaded someone. It was that he had an inappropriate relationship. It was that he did something foolish at a party. It's that he bowed to peer pressure. And he didn't stop any of those things and get himself back on track. Do you see? The entanglement. And we understand that attitude, don't we? How many times when we failed once on a smaller one do we just go, well, it doesn't matter, I'll just give up and do it again and again. And then it grows. And then we think, well, I've blown it all together and the floodgates open. This is how people end up walking away from the Lord. I've said it before, sometimes when we've failed, we kind of go, well, that's it, I've blown it, uh, and just open the floodgates. Don't. Get back to repenting again and again. It's what we're to do. What, and it's, the, the more we don't do it, the entanglement will become bigger and bigger and it will be harder and harder to stop. Think of it like dieting. If you blow your diet... The worst thing you can do is go, well, I've blown it on that meal. I may as well just go back to normal. No, if you've blown it on that meal, don't blow it on the next meal. That's repenting. Do the small things and the big things will take care of themselves. I've said it before, the old uh, saying is true. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. 
Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Starts with a thought, ends with a destiny. Be, let's be repentant on the small things. The bigger things will take care of themselves. If we don't repent, we won't find Jesus and we won't carry on with Jesus because repentance is part of the heart of the gospel. Do you see that Herod here is an example of someone who turned his conscience off and wouldn't repent? And small things became big things. Relatively minor matters became serious matters because a seared conscience is significant and sin entangles without repentance. And when we don't repent, we don't find Jesus. Don't be like Herod. Be like John, don't be like Herod. And so as I finish, I want to ask you, because I've found this fairly confronting, I want to ask you whether there's areas in your life at the moment where you're going against your conscience and you know it. Whether there's areas in your life at the moment that you are justifying or refusing to repent from. You're kind of holding on to it, and you know you're holding on to it. I want to say to you, as I've been saying to myself, if we're doing that, we're putting ourselves in danger, shipwrecking our faith. Because what it is, is we're loving it more than Jesus. We're living for it more than Jesus. It could be what Herod was facing here, relationships, not wanting to upset other people. It could be money, food, drink, sex, greed. These are the things that often entangle and and pleasure. Don't be like Herod. He's a tragic figure here in Matthew. We're supposed to see him and take warning from him. This is not a padded section in Matthew's Gospel. It's not like Matthew thought, well, what else can I write about? I want it to be longer than Mark's Gospel. (laughs) It's not like he thought, well, um, I'll I'll talk a little bit about Herod. It wasn't anything like this. This is about how will people respond to Jesus. The whole Gospel's been about Jesus. And Herod is a tragic figure because he, he sees Jesus Makes him think about John the Baptist. His conscience works again, and yet he still won't repent. This is about a guy who made the kind of mistakes that we're liable to make. Wrong relationships, fear of peer pressure, bad moves at a party. He wouldn't live in light of his conscience, and he certainly wouldn't repent. Therefore, he misses out on Jesus. Let's learn from his mistake. I beg you to take the chance today. If there are certain things that have been in your mind as I've been asking that, stop them. Turn from them. Put them to to death. Make the change and live in line with your conscience and live a life of repentance. And when you fail, and you will fail like I fail, just do it again. And when you slip up, pick yourself up and keep going again. That's the response that leads to Jesus. That's the response that's following Jesus. I pray that we'll learn from Herod. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for... um, the opportunity to learn from this tragic figure and this very sad event. I pray that you would help us. There may be some here even this morning that are are thinking of particular people or events or activities in their life where we know our conscience has been pricked, but we've we've not listened to it. Or we've known there are certain things that we should turn from that we haven't. Father, I pray that we would learn from Herod and do it, and that in doing so, we would be following more closely the one who brings forgiveness and salvation, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, give us by your spirit the desire and the power to be able to do that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.